Peekskill, New York. Angela Correa was 15 years old. She was a student at Peekskill High School with an interest in photography as a hobby and perhaps eventually a career. On November 15, 1989, she went missing, and an area-wide search was conducted. Two days later, Angela's body was found. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled to death. Police began an investigation and questioned some of the other students at Angela's school. Based on some tips, they began to question one of her fellow students, 16-year-old Jeff Deskovic. After a long session with a polygraph examiner, Deskovic confessed to the murder. He was charged and convicted and sentenced. He was in prison for 16 years. Just one problem with this story. He didn't do it. Jeff Deskovic is my guest on the show today, and we talked about a lot of things, including why he would confess to a murder that he didn't commit, and what it was like to be a sensitive 17-year-old boy living in prison next to violent criminals. And best of all, what he's been able to do since he got out. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Where were you when you first found out what happened to Angela Correa? I was at my home, and I remember reading an article on the Evening Star. It was on the front page of the daily newspaper in Westchester, New York. It said, teen body found, uh, right, underneath, right underneath the caption where her uh, photo was. And you know, it was, a, it was the lead story. So it had already happened. This was like the next day? Well, she went missing on November 15th, and, and the article came out. Her body was found on the 17th, and I think that's it's either that day or the day after that that it was, um, it was the lead story in the Evening Star. And what happened to her? Yeah, she was uh, she was raped and murdered. I mean, she uh, she was 
taking she was taking some pictures in connection with her photography class and she never came back she went to take, to take some photos at a, at a at a park you know she was supposed to go with a male student who had been assigned to her to go together like a buddy system but the male student played uh, hooky from the assignment and she went decided to go on her own ironically it was the only time she went anywhere without being accompanied by her older sister or her parents and you know she met this uh drug addict who was high and who murdered and raped her now you were when this happened you were only 16 was this your like your first experience with someone dying i was 16 and it really it it was it was yeah it was it was my first experience with somebody dying yes it affected you very strongly right yeah it did affect me uh it did affect me emotionally i mean angela was in two of my classes as a freshman one as a sophomore i knew her name she knew mine i mean that was the extent of it we weren't on a high buy basis but still it was still my first real brush with death uh, i was a sentimental kid it did affect me emotionally um but then again it affected many other people um, emotionally as well to the point that free mental health services were set up to offer to anyone in the city of Peekskill who wanted to avail themselves uh, of it. So in that aspect of it, I don't think I was that different from anyone else. But there w it was a reason that the police cited as why I got onto their radar. Uh, another uh, factor was they said that they interviewed many students in the high school and that some of them told the police they might want to speak to me because I didn't quite fit in. So that was another factor. And a third thing was that the police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psych psychological characteristics of what the actual perpetrator you know, looked like, and I had the misfortune of matching those characteristics. So it was a type of reinforcing factor. So they kind of figured they had the guy, the right guy, before they even started talking to you then? That's correct. It sounds like. Yes, I, I, that's my sense of things, yes. Did you have an alibi? I did. I was actually playing wiffle ball with uh, one of my with one of my um, friends when the crime happened. But police never checked out the alibi, and my attorney never interviewed or call or interviewed the alibi witness or ever called him as a witness at the trial either. Can you talk about the that terribly long interrogation? Prior to the interrogation, which uh, produced the coerced false confession, there was a six-week time period in which half the time the police would speak to me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. Let us know if you hear any rumors. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinions were correct. They made me feel important. Before I was a teenager, my, the career I wanted to have when I was growing up was actually to be a cop. So this unexpected early opportunity to do this quasi-police work along with my age, which was 16, is what allowed the police to pull the wool over my eyes. So I have to say, that just sounds so despicable to, I mean, to manipulate a teenager like that as if, you know, it's, it's, it's you and us. We can find this. Let's, let's, let's be detectives, you know. That just seems terrible. It definitely, it definitely was a very deceptive thing to do to a teenager. I mean, they clearly were over, were overreaching me, and I was way in over my head. Eventually, they got me to agree to take a lie detector test by telling me that some new information had come in to the police file, and they wanted to share that with me, and that would allow me to be more helpful to them. But first, I would have to take and pass a polygraph. And so the next day, rather than report to school, I instead went to the police station for this test. 
And because it was a school day, my, my, neither my mother or grandmother with whom I lived realized that I was, they didn't realize I wasn't in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. They drove me to the town of Brewster, which was uh, in Putnam County, which was about 40 minutes away by car. So that meant that I was no longer able to leave on my own. I was instead dependent upon the police. And I want to point out they were also playing that game of good cop, bad cop, where one officer takes on a more aggressive role and his partner pretends to be a friend who's opposed to what's going on, but somehow powerless to intervene. So after bringing me to Brewster for this polygraph, met the polygraphist, who was actually a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as a cop, and he never read me my rights. Uh, I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time that I was there. They gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, since I was there to help the police, what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. From there, they put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee. Seems pretty clear in hindsight the purpose of giving me the coffee was to get me nervous. And from there, they attached me to the machine and they launched into this um, interrogation. So used a lot of third-degree scare tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He, he raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he, he said, you know, what do you mean you didn't, you didn't do it? You just told me that a test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. At that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend. He came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he had been holding them off but couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he, then he said, just tell them what they want to hear, and you can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, uh, not thinking about the long term. I was only concerned my own safety in the moment. I mean, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and nobody else knew where I was either loomed very large in my mind. And I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. And so I made up a story based upon the information which they had given me in the course of the interrogation that day and in the six weeks run up to it. By the end of the interrogation, I collapsed onto the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Uh, obviously, I was arrested. I was charged with a murder and rape. People always ask, why would somebody confess to something that they didn't do? But it really happens more often than we think. The truth is that it does happen more often than what people think. And in fact, coerced false confessions have been a cause of wrongful convictions in 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. Uh, particularly vulnerable populations are people with mental health issues and youth. And I know you know those numbers because of your work that you do today, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. But th this wasn't so long ago that it was before DNA. I mean, couldn't, couldn't they have used DNA to exclude you? The case happened, I was, the murder happened in 1989. I was arrested in 1990. And uh, DNA, although certainly early on, uh, was, not, was not new. It, it had first been used in 1987. And in fact, the, they did perform a DNA test in my case, which uh, showed that the semen found in the victim didn't, did not match me. And that was all known prior to the trial. But when that happened, instead of acknowledging they made a mistake, they continued to prosecute uh, anyway. To overcome the DNA, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to to commit fraud, to, to uh, commit perjury. So specifically, when an autopsy happens, there's audio and written notes which are taken at the same time as the autopsy is done. 
So it was only six months after doing that autopsy, about six months later, hundreds of autopsies later, that this medical examiner claimed that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence which he showed, which he claimed showed that the victim had been sexually active, which is what allowed the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the semen didn't come for me. That didn't mean I was innocent. It just meant that there was yet another person that she had slept with. Taking his lie a step further, he also claimed that he also named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim. But he never called that other youth as a, as a witness to give verbal testimony to that effect. He never got a DNA sample of him to prove it. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. A Angela's family had not been coming to the court, so they were totally unaware of what was being said about her in the courtroom. I mean, in so many words, they were willing to trash her reputation in order to wrongfully convict me. Why was her family not coming to court? I'm still not clear on why her family wasn't coming to court. That misconduct on the part of the prosecution was compounded by the defense failures. So my attorney never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me or used that to argue that it proved the confession was coerced and false. He never cross-examined, he literally never cross-examined the medical examiner to expose his fraud. He should have never represented me in the first place because of a conflict of interest in that the other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying uh, had slept with the victim was represented by another member of the Westchester County Legal Aid Society, uh, and specifically by the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him in my case. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to give a DNA sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness to explode this whole consensual sex theory. My lawyer very rarely met with me whenever I would meet with him, whenever the rare times I did meet with him, and I would try to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He would tell me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. Another thing was that my interrogation was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. There was no signed confession. It was just a cop's word for it. And as a result of that, when they came into court, they were able to leave out the threat and false promise from their testimony. So the only way that that evidence could have made its way on the record would have been if I took the witness stand. But he wouldn't allow me to testify. You know, in reality, if your client is charged with a crime that he or she hasn't committed, you have to try to prove that they didn't do it. Or they run a risk of possibly being wrongfully convicted, particularly in a confession case where there's an 80% conviction rate. You have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to try to prove that confession was false, you know, as many ways as you can, and then bring it all together in your closing argument, except that he didn't do any of that. And as a result of that, you know, I was, uh, I was wrongfully convicted and given a 15-to-life sentence, which I was sent to a men's maximum security prison to serve since I had been charged as an adult. Do you know why he didn't do any of that? Would you, would you classify it as incompetence or laziness or something else? I'm still not clear on why he didn't, why he didn't do any of that. I mean, he had a reputation as being the best trial lawyer in legal aid. So, and many lawyers that I've talked to in the area since my exoneration, when they ask me who represented me and I, and I give them his name, they always express surprise because he had a reputation as being a good attorney. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. 
Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut. With Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic, go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When I was sitting there in the court and I heard the guilty verdict, I mean, I, I couldn't believe my own ears. I remember thinking to myself, well, did I miss the word not? And I remember just being beside myself because I, I was just in this type of stunned disbelief. I was in shock. I mean, to my way of thinking, at least up until that point in time, I thought only the guilty were convicted. Yeah, that's what a lot of people think. How long before you were taken to prison? Once I was wrongfully 
convicted. I mean, I was I was immediately uh, taken back in a custody because I, I was uh, had been released uh, on bail. And from there, I, I remained I remained in prison there for 16 years. And where is that? I, I was sent to Elmira Correctional Facility. That's where I spent the majority of the 16 years. Can you describe your first day going into prison? I still remember the first day. I remember being in handcuffs and having a chain around my waist and having my legs fastened together, as well as fastened to the legs of the prisoner on the bus next to me. I remember how large the prison wall loomed. I remember how menacing the barbed wire appeared. I remember walking down the cell gallery and seeing a lot of prisoners there whose arms were as big as my legs. I mean, it, was, it was pretty frightening. I mean, you know, these were fully formed adults, uh, you know, many of whom were guilty of committing very violent, very serious offenses. And on top of that, I had a bullseye on my back because, you know, there's a vigilante mentality in prison towards people who have been convicted of sex offenses. You were going in here just as a young, naive kid. How old were you, 17? I was 17 years old when I first entered Elmira Correctional Facility. When I was initially processed, uh, and, you know, given my, the supplies, I was just taken to a cell by myself. Uh, later on in... 1995, uh, New York State Department of Corrections, they started doing the double selling, the first two cells on, on the gallery as a way of making more space for prisoners without having to build more prisons. And so when that happened from 1995 until I was ultimately released in 2006, I would say that I had a cellmate maybe close to 50% of the time. The cellmates that were assigned to you, did you feel safe being in a cell with that person or... Or what was the relationship there? I got lucky in terms of the cellmates that I was assigned to. I was always apprehensive whenever I was in the cell with, with, with somebody else because I was, you know, most of the time, though not always, mo most of the time, these were people that I didn't know. But I got comfortable. You have an initial conversation with people, and, and you know, as it turned out, I felt, um, as it turned out, I mean, I had people that that seemed to be, you know, reasonable people, but I mean, it was still hard to fully be comfortable. Yeah, I mean, you're living uh, within feet of each other, and somebody you don't know it could be somebody with a mental illness or a severe anger problem, or somebody that just doesn't like the way you look at them. You know, there's little to no privacy. It's possible that when you're not in the cell, that they might receive your mail as well. They were all, you know, and. You went to sleep, who knows what happens then. So there's all types of, uh, all types of dangers that are inherent in a double-selling situation. What was the day-to-day -day like in prison? I mean, what, was it, what did you do? In terms of my day-to-day -day life in the prison, the alarm would go off around 6.30, and you know, that would let you know that the guards were coming around in a few more minutes after that just to do a count, which means they're trying to make sure that everybody, nobody's escaped and that everybody's alive. Then they open the cell at 7 o'clock, and you go to the mess hall, uh, which is like the cafeteria. You go through a routine in terms of how you get your food and when you can get up, and you go through security, go through a metal detector, and then you go out to a program in the morning, which would be something, education, an educational program, vocational program, or something that in one way or another has something to do with running the prison. Then you go back through security around 11 o'clock. You go back to your cell for an hour. And they let you out for lunch. You, re you repeat that routine. You go out to your afternoon program. And then that's when the day would split. So meaning that 
uh, Elmira had recreation every other night. So if it was a night that they had recreation that night, so then after the program was over around 3.15, you would go back to your cell and you'd stay there until until around uh, quarter to five. That's That would be, you know, dinner would be optional if you want to go. And you would wait for them to then open the cells at seven o'clock. And so rec- recreation would be from seven to 10. But if it was a night where there was no recreation, then from you would go to recreation from the afternoon program. So it would be from 3.15 to about 4.15. Then you'd go back to your cell where you would stay until the next morning, unless you were allowed, unless you had a someplace specific that you were authorized to go to in, in, the, in the evening time. Can you talk about rapists being in prison or, or sexual offenders being in prison? When somebody is uh, convicted of a, of, of a sex offense, then, you know, just by virtue of that, I mean, they're, they're in danger. So if the other prisoners discover that, then that might be a motivation for them to be assaulted. That could be with the hands, it might, they might get stabbed, they might get cut, it might be one person, it could be several. The correction officers have a similar mentality as far as, you know, they don't like people that are convicted of sex offenses, so they might tell other prisoners what, what you're incarcerated for. So as a result of that, I was always on edge, I was always alert, and I always had the fact that people might discover what I was incarcerated for, you know, and that I always had that at the back of my mind. I can imagine how that could be mentally just exhausting, always wondering, you know, if somebody's ever going to find out. And did they find out? There were times where people found out and, you know, I got beat up different you know, throughout the years at times. And you know, one time I nearly lost my life. But, you know, I also was fortunate that I had, you know, I had some long stretches of time as well where, where nothing would happen. So it was kind of a mixed, it was kind of a mixed bad, but bag, but there's no question that it added a lot of stress to the situation. Did your family ever visit you in prison? My mother was the only consistent visitor that I had. My grandmother used to come up with her on, on the visit, but uh, my grandmother passed away after about, uh, about, after about six years of being incarcerated. I have a brother who's three and a half years uh, younger than me, and he came to see me um, maybe like th- three times in 16 years, not, not at all in the last decade. I had several sets of aunts and uncles that they would come and visit and then they disappear for three years and they would keep that up. You know, then in the last six years, I, you know, I was lucky if I saw my mother once every um, six months. I, I, I think that the long trip and the, you know, I had some problems with her in her feet and her back and so she began to see less and less. So, so although, I guess to sum up, although not literal, in many ways, I, I almost did the time most, I did the time mostly by myself. I think, I feel it's fair to say that. So while you were in, were you actively working on your case or was anybody working on your case? While I was incarcerated, work was being done on my case and I also worked some on my case. Altogether, I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole as well. Uh, I used to go to the law library and look cases up that pertain to the issues that, that were related in, in, in my case. And when my appeals were over, which was about, which was in 2001. So by that point, I would have had 11 years in. And so when your appeals are over, the only way back into court is if you can find some new evidence that wasn't known before, or if there's been some change in the law that didn't happen before that they're going to apply retroactively to other cases. So at that point, going to the law library became much less important. And instead, the focus became just writing letters 
uh, looking for help, trying to find a lawyer, an investigator who could who would work on my case for free because I didn't have any money to hire them. But I also wrote a lot of other people that were not in legal field. I mean, if I could come up with a line of reasoning, like something somebody could do, which could set in motion a chain of events that ultimately culminated into my getting the legal representation I needed, then I would write a letter to that person, explain how they could be helpful. And I took the chance and that became my legal work. So as you might imagine, after a while, because uh, I was writing all the time, I just coming up with the new ideas at times were becoming hard and obtaining addresses of people was never something that could be taken for granted either. That, that was a big chore because it, it's hard to have access to information while, while you're in prison. How did you look up addresses? Did, I mean, did you have the internet in there? They didn't have the internet in there. I mean, I would, I would have to ask my mother to look addresses up and, and I would get creative also. I mean, if books had like the addresses of, uh, publishing houses where you could write the author of a book in care of, there will be that. But I was always on, I was always on the lookout for addresses of people and places that I thought that their walk of life might have led them to likely to become in contact or already have come in contact with somebody that could possibly help me. What I was looking for was post-conviction DNA testing and specifically through the DNA data bank. So the data bank had been created in 1997-98. And with that advance in technology, the difference is that they, you could go from saying that the DNA evidence didn't match you to saying, not only does it not match me, but here's who it does match. You know, so that's what I, and so that was really the, a big focal point. It took a long time even for that to happen. You know, eventually I wound up in, in touch with the Innocence Project. But before I had their representation, I mean, I tried to get DNA testing. I mean, Janine, when Janine Pirro was the Westchester County DA, her office, they uh, declined to give me testing several times. You know, and then you know, and I, had, I needed to get the legal representation. Eventually, I wound up with the Innocence Project. So that was that was the first key was getting their help. And the second thing was Pirro left office. And the third thing is that the new DA allowed me to get the testing without having to litigate over it. Uh, and so they took the crime scene DNA evidence, which already didn't match me. And they ran it through the data bank and it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only in that data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and mother of two. So on September 22nd, 2006, the conviction was overturned and I was released and reported back to court on November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. So because of what happened to me, it wasn't simply that I was wrongfully convicted, but that it also had serious consequences for, for others. I mean, the, because they did that to me, the actual perpetrator was free and he killed that second victim. And uh, confronted with the DNA evidence matching him, uh, he, he confessed to the crime and he ultimately was charged and convicted for it. So you were released in 2006. What did you miss the most while you were in prison? If I was to look back in terms of what I missed most while I was in prison, I would say freedom in, in, one, in one word, freedom. I mean, just to put in perspective, uh, I was in prison from 78, 17 to 32. So I didn't graduate high school. I didn't go to the prom. You know, I missed births, deaths, weddings, ho holidays, finishing my education at a more traditional age, being established in a career, possibly having a family. And what was the first thing you did when you got out? 
but it was a press conference, which I was totally not prepared for. And my first words actually were, is this really happening? I thought I, I thought I finally managed to, I thought it was possible that I finally managed to lose my mind a little bit. And so those were literally my first words. And I said everything I ever wanted to say in 16 years, but could never get anybody to hear me. So I spoke for about two, two and a half hours. And then from there, I went to a, a luncheonette. There was a lunch celebration and I, I had uh, mussels with uh, fra diavolo sauce, a little bit of uh, baked city on the side. I had a Neapolitan ice cream. And uh, I'd love to be able to say that from there, we went and had some par some raucous party that lasted to the early hours of the dawn. But the truth of the matter is that by then, I had lost touch with everybody that I that I knew. So I was just I, I remember just sitting around a table with some family members and a couple of other people came over. And I remember just sitting there feeling isolated, you know, just feeling out of place. And I just wound up doing something that I had wanted to do for a long time, which was just sit outside in, in, in the darkness, because once it gets a little bit dark in the prison yard, they, they, they close it and make you go inside. So I sat outside uh, on a table in my uncle's property, and later I took a bath, which was the first bath I took in 16 years. So those were kind of the highlights of it. Prior to your release, you started laying the groundwork for additional education. And this is the, this is the real story. Uh, you know, the, the happy part of the story is what happened after you got out. Can you talk about that? What were, what were you preparing for? While I was in prison, I tried to minimize the loss that I was experiencing, and I tried to take advantage of the time. So I got a GED, recalling that I had gotten arrested while I was in high school. Uh, so I got the GED. I got the associate's degree. I completed a year of schooling towards the bachelor's degree at the time with which the funding was then cut for college education for prisoners. But I learned other things from there. I learned how to type. I took a class on how adults learned, and I worked as, as, as a teacher's aide. And I completed an assortment of vocational traits. And then also from 1998 to 2006, I read three or four nonfiction books every week. When I wasn't, if I wasn't writing letters looking for help, I, or after I would write them and I'd burn myself out, I would then read non nonfiction books. So all of that made up my education while I was in prison. And so as a result of that, when I was released, I had that much less to go. So it made it into one of the daily newspaper articles, a human interest item associated with my case and release, that I was 30 credits short of the bachelor's degree. And somebody, at, a dean actually at Mercy College saw that, and she lined up a scholarship for me so that I was able to get a, complete the bachelor's degree from Mercy College. They allowed me to live on campus, which allowed me to avoid the homeless shelter because I had lost the temporary housing that I had. i get into that in a minute. But from there, I was able to make, I mean, I was, I was foolishly thinking that I was too old to go to college. It was something that I aspired to before, but I was just kind of floundering around and I was thinking, you know, I'm too old to do this, but I didn't really know what to do. And so when I was presented with that offer, I, I just jumped on it and I was able to make good from there. I mean, graduating Mercy College, but from there getting a master's degree from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. My thesis is written on wrongful conviction, cause and reform. And ultimately I was able to get a law degree and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a licensed attorney now at this point. So you started the, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, and that was even before you became a lawyer. So for about five years, I was an individual advocate. I was doing presentations around the country. I became a weekly columnist. I was trading privacy for awareness by doing multimedia interviews. I was regularly meeting with elected officials. 
I was simultaneously pursuing compensation. So after about five years, I was able to receive some financial compensation and I wanted to take my advocacy work to the next level. And so I started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice, whose mission is to free the wrongfully convicted people who are in the same position that I was in and to continue pursuing policy changes aimed at preventing wrongful conviction. So since opening our doors in 2011, uh, we've been able to free 10 wrongfully convicted people. We've been able to help pass three laws, uh, videotaping interrogations, better identification procedures, DNA data bank expansion. Then as an advisory board member of the coalition group, it could happen to you, which the foundation is part of, and we do our policy work uh, through them, we were able to pass four additional laws. So uh, oversight for prosecutors, what's called discovery reform, so exchange of information by both sides, so both sides have access to the same information, and then also uh, automatic expungement. So we're doing policy work in New York, Pennsylvania, and California while we're pursuing the wrongful conviction cases primarily in, in New York. But I started the foundation prior to becoming an attorney. Uh, so what drove me to become an attorney is at some point I became not satisfied with sitting in the front row in the courtroom, even if the attorney was actually an employee or we had worked collaboratively on the case before that, uh, you know, I wanted to be able to sit at the defense table and I wanted to be able to, you know, represent some of the clients and hence my foray into uh, law school. And I feel like the extra credentials also help the policy work that I do. That's got to be incredibly gratifying to because now 10 people are free because of the work that you've done. And I saw you mentioned that when you're presenting to a judge, you can actually cite your own case. Doing this type of advocacy work is very gratifying. I mean, there's nothing better than being able to free people that are wrongfully imprisoned or, you know, being able to help change the law. And I actually can. I have the ability to cite my own case when making an argument to a judge. So I mean, how many other lawyers can do that? So, you know, I can fight it. So what, what the context that that probably would arise under would be when the prosecution is using technicalities to fight against innocence claims. So I could meet those technicalities, some of the merits, but then I'd shift, I would shift gears and say, but really, in reality, what, what they're really asking you to do, Your Honor, is to ignore a bedrock principle, guilt or innocence. That's what this is all about. They want you to ignore that and focus in only on the law. But see, in People versus Deskovic, Deskovic was denied his day in court because the, because his paperwork arrived four days late, a lateness caused by the court clerk. So we can see in that case, which resulted in the defendant remaining in wrongfully imprisoned for nine years as a result of putting these proceduralisms over the bedrock principle of guilt or innocence. That's what he's asking this court to do right now. Is that the ruling that Your Honor is prepared to make to cause my client to remain in prison because of this technicality rather than getting to the threshold issue? of whether they've been able to prove their innocence or not. You got a preview of it right here. I love that. I, I'm, I'm picturing the scene uh, with Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. <laughs> There's some passion there, you know, in a, a few, what was the name of it? A Few Good Men. A Few Good Men. I, I remember that. That's a classic. That's it one is. of my favorites. Classic courtroom scene. Yeah. Y you were freed because of the work of the Innocence Project. Why, why not just join them? Firstly, I admire them, and secondly, I do follow a lot of their, their principles. 
Uh, but the reason why not just join them is because, number one, they only take on DNA cases, and DNA is only available in 5 to 12% of all serious felony cases, whereas at the foundation we take on both DNA and non-DNA cases. And none of the people that we've gotten out have their cases involved DNA, and actually there's only a few that, that do as amongst the 10 active cases that we have now. So that's one reason. The second reason is at the time when I started the organization, the Innocence Project, they told me that if they made an exception for me, then they would need to make an exception for everybody. And that, they, that was not the direction that they, that they wanted to go in. And number three, some of the policy positions that I uh, advocate for were ones that they privately agreed with me on but weren't really willing to do. So, for, for example, I mean, they rely on the cooperation of prosecutors in order to get DNA testing. They only litigate against them when they have to, which is a, which is a really great idea. However, when I feel like that when it came to suggestions of what to do about prosecutorial misconduct, I feel like, you know, they, you know, they weren't willing to be aggressive in pursuing policy changes. So that was one thing. Uh, another thing was a lot, it's mentioned in a lot of the case narratives of the exonerees that when they went to the parole board and they maintained their innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, that that led to the parole board denying them parole, which resulted in an extension of an already unjust prison stay. So they mentioned that in the case narrative, the summary of, of the exonerees case, the, the write-up, but they don't pursue that as an actual policy issue that they're seeking to get changes from. So you know, I wanted to not just continue the same old, same old policy issues, but I wanted to add some new issues that I thought had merit and support, but they weren't willing to do that. So all of those, for all those reasons, I pursued my own organization rather than teaming up with them. Obviously, there are systemic problems, and that's part of the policy changes that you're going after to, to try to fix. But I'm wondering, are prosecutors set up to have the wrong incentive you know, just to get a conviction? How can we reward them for getting the right conviction instead of just closing cases? I think that in some ways, the way the system is built, that it provides incentives for prosecutors to simply win rather than seek justice. They're supposed to seek justice, whether that means convicting the guilty through lawfully gathered evidence through a fair trial or dismissing cases against people who are, who are innocent. But instead, district attorneys, sometimes they run on their conviction record. Oh, I'm going to keep you safe. I have a 98%. I have a 99% conviction rate. The line prosecutors are looking to get promotions, you know, move up in the ranks. Maybe the district attorney, him or herself, is eyeing a higher office and you know, trying to use high-profile cases to get to get that win. So, I mean, just looking at it as, as an adversarial process rather than just truth-seeking. Truth so I think that there's that. But I also think that the lack of oversight for prosecutors, the lack of repercussions, you know, both civilly and, and, and criminally, also adds to a prevalence of, uh, of misconduct, along with the fact that even if they get caught committing misconduct, not only do they not face civil or criminal penalties, but a lot of times the conviction itself won't be reversed. The courts engage in what's called harmless error analysis. So they try to look back in hindsight and determine if the defendant would have been convicted anyway. And if, and if they think the answer is yes, then they don't bother to reverse it. They, they look at it you know, as a waste of time and resources. Whereas I think that once misconduct takes place, it, it, color, it changes the lens from which a case will be viewed. Everything after that is impacted. And 
really, if it was harmless, why, why would the prosecution have bothered to engage in it? So I, I advocate uh, not just for a commission on prosecutor conduct and oversight of prosecutors uh, removing immunity so that they could be sued if they engage in clear-cut clear -cut intentional misconduct. I think when they withhold evidence of innocence, that should be criminal and that there should be an automatic uh, reversal when, when that happens because that's the only way to give the defendant their right to a fair trial. Well, if I ever get wrongfully convicted, I want you to be handling my case. Sure, but hopefully that never happens. Hopefully not, but you've got quite a backlog, though, right? Are you even taking new clients now? So the foundation currently, uh, you know, we have 10 active cases. We have another seven that have been approved but are just waiting. But aside from that, we have a backlog of about 400 to 500 cases that are just raw cases, just waiting to be screened. Uh, so at this point, we're we're not even taking we're not taking new uh, new applications at the at this point. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to we're trying to fundraise. We're looking for large donors, small donors, medium. We're looking for celebrity spokespeople. We're looking to increase our capacity so that at that point, you know, we would be able to open back up and take on new uh, applications. And we'd like to pursue policy changes in other states also. But right now, we're you know we're maxed out. We're doing. We're doing everything that we can right now. We're probably a little bit overextended, but, you know, it's, it's hard not to be in this line of work. For someone listening to this, what can people do to help? Or what would you want someone to do? Or how, to, how can they contact you or find out what, more about what you do? So if somebody listening wanted to help, there's a number of ways. Firstly, in terms of them being able to reach me, they could go to our website, www.deskovic, that's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C, uh, org. You can email me from there. I do answer the emails. We do have a crowdfunding page on the website called Patreon. And, you know, my crazy dream is that what if 25,000 people were willing to, you know, sacrifice 3 to $5 or whatever other level they were comfortable at, at a recurring monthly basis? That would give us close to a million dollar budget. And that would allow us to hire lawyers, paralegals, investigators, and other essential personnel needed to uh, free innocent people. And we could continue on with our policy work, expand into other states. So contributing to the Patreon campaign, spreading it word of mouth, social media, etc. If you're a person of means, certainly uh, if someone was able to be a large donor, uh, if, you're, if the company that you work for engages in corporate philanthropy, corporate responsibility, we, you know, we are a 501c3. So hey, men mention us. If you have a skill or a talent or can help in any way, that would be appreciated as well. The foundation does have a, a Facebook page. Uh, I have a, both a public figure page and a, and a personal page. So I, whatever I put on one page, I copy over. I'm close to the 5,000 uh, limit. I um, also have LinkedIn and, uh, and Instagram. The special talent that I have is just having you on the podcast, getting the word out there. So hopefully this helps. That counts. That counts. I just wanted to add that I've done a TEDx. People can look at that on uh, our YouTube channel, Deskovic Foundation. And there is a documentary short out uh, entitled Conviction, which is available on Amazon Prime. And it's, it's uh, about my life post-exoneration and the advocacy work that I do. Well, obviously, with, your, with the history that you have, you can, you can do that with a lot of passion, as you've shown here. So I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for having me on the show. If you really want to see a good video of Jeff telling this story, I recommend the documentary about him that's on Amazon Prime. It has a simple one-word title, Conviction. 
You can search for it on Amazon or get the link from my website. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might also like episode 46, titled James Spent 35 Years in Prison. James was another person who was wrongfully convicted and then was eventually exonerated because of DNA evidence through the help of the Innocence Project. Kind of makes you wonder how many people are in prison for something they didn't do. Or worse, the people who are on death row for a murder they didn't commit. If you want to connect with me and tons of other listeners and discuss podcast episodes or a bunch of other intriguing topics, the place to do that is in our private Facebook group. We have somewhere around 1,300 people in there now, and new people join every day. You'll be in good company. That's at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. There's also a subreddit for this podcast and an Instagram page and all kinds of other stuff, and you can get the links to all of that on my website. And now, today's listener story. Thanks for hanging out with me today, and I'll see you in two weeks. Yeah, hi, my name's John, and I had this story from when I was a kid where uh, we were driving through the Verde River area in uh, Arizona, and it was the middle of spring, and the wasps were all flying around, and I'm terrified of anything that flies or stings. And my dad gets the truck stuck, and so he gets out to unstick the truck, and the windows are down, and I'm sitting there freaking out that a wasp might fly into the car, and my dad gets tired of hearing it, so he yanks me out of the car and puts me in the middle of this swarm of wasps and basically says, face your fears, and then goes back to trying to get the truck unstuck. And I'm about as terrified of wasps as I am of my dad, so I'm just sitting there freaking out, terrified to move with all these wasps swarming around me. And my mom decides to come out and try to calm me down, and she ends up getting stung a bunch of times while trying to calm me down. I take this opportunity to run screaming back to the car, and I cover myself in a blanket until the car starts moving again. Meanwhile, my mom and dad are over there fighting about how she got stung and how that's no way to deal with your kid's phobia. To this day, I'm still terrified of things that fly and sting. Not nearly as bad as when I was a kid, though.